Well, good morning, church. And as we've said to the moms, happy Mother's Day. If you would please be turning open to 1 Timothy chapter 4. As we're continuing our series in 1 Timothy, I do think that this next section of verses is going to be very helpful and, and I, I trust exhorting and encouraging to the moms. Look at verses 1 through 6. If you notice, your Bible's probably broken off into passages, like a couple paragraphs at a time. We're taking the first one of another line. When, when Paul originally wrote this letter, there were no verse numbers, there were no paragraphs. He just wrote a letter like we write a letter. And so we, people went back years later and said, oh, let's try to figure out where thoughts fit and stuff. I think verse 6 fits very nicely with verses 1 through 5. And I'll explain that as we go through in the, the message. If you would follow along for the reading of God's word. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of, insincerity of liars whose consciences are, consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Father, we ask that the preaching of your word would produce life and fruitfulness in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, hopefully you're asking, what on earth does that have to do with being a mom? Good question. Seems counterintuitive to take a passage about people departing from the faith to encourage moms. Right? Think with me. It's all right. Yes, I've thought about that. Why in the world am I preaching from this on Mother's Day? You can be asking that. This is why. Because that's every mom's worst fear. As Jordan said, those late nights when you were staying up and you were burdened for the souls of your children, no matter what the age is, and you're battling the fear, what if they never come to faith? What if they don't stay in the faith? What if they don't come back to the faith? So what we're going to do as an encouragement to you moms is to take the fears head on and to ask the Lord for grace and mercy. And at the end of the message, I'm going to pray for your children. Because that's the best way to pray for you, right? Because you feel that and you know it. This is not, I don't want it to be insensitive, like just, all right, we're going through a series. Let's just keep on going. No, because what God's word is to us in our moment, in, in our lives, it's countercultural or, or, and it's counterintuitive. What we think comes easily and naturally to us, God says, no, hold, check that. I've got a better way. And I've got a better way for you to walk in. You know, it's, it's facing fear sometimes. This might look like, you know, some, when you see your baby try to swim for the first time, and there's that one teacher that'll just throw him straight in the pool, and you freak out, like, what's going on? It might feel a little bit like that today, but God's in control, 
Just like the, the swim instructor says, it's okay. It's okay. God's in control. Moms, we're going to look some fears straight in the eye. And we're going to trust we're going to hear God's booming voice over your life and the life of your children. This passage for us this morning is about facing the truth of swerving from the faith with a rock-solid trust in the enduring word of God as we live as lights in the darkness. Look, we... It's inevitable that people will depart from the faith. But our response is not to look at the people, but to look at their God and trust that he is still working good and he will not let them go. He sees them. He knows their name. He knows the names of your children. So if you look at the first two verses for the first point, we have swayed hearts and seared minds. Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Paul's not just saying, you know what, it's probable. He says the Holy Spirit, God, is saying some will depart from the faith. This could have been a reference to Paul's prophecy in eight, uh, Acts 20, where he's meeting with the Ephesian elders on his way back to Jerusalem, where he would eventually be arrested by Roman authorities, well, by the church and then the Roman authorities. Or Paul could be referring to Jesus' teaching. We have the parable of the sower. Remember those, the seed that is sown in the four soils? And only one is the good soil? Three are the bad soils that don't last. One's rock hard, never even penetrates. One is filled with all kind of, and there's no depth of soil, so it doesn't grow tall enough. And then you've got the thorns that choke out the light. There's one. Or in Matthew 7, when Jesus says there is a, there's a false assurance of salvation. Remember, he goes, he tells them, some of you uh, will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say to you in that day, get, get out from my presence. You were never one of us. And they said this, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? They got a, they got a better report card than we do. Uh, and Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. So what we're going to see in a second is that we, we intuitively go toward action and performance. And God, and Jesus is saying that, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. See, salvation is about God knowing us and us knowing his knowledge and his love of us. More contrastly, than us just doing a great job for God and hopefully one day maybe sort of we'll do enough for him to accept us. Departures from the faith will happen. It saddens us. It shouldn't surprise us. Uh, just over the last couple of years, it seems that some very notable departures have, have been in the church and several have caught my attention from worship leaders who've written some, some of my favorite worship songs through the years just coming to a point in their lives of saying, and there's this new weird term called deconstructing your faith. It's a very postmodern thing to do. But in that course of life, they come to the point of saying, I just don't think God's there anymore. And I'm just going to do my own thing. Pastors. Some pastors that I have, uh, they have written books and I have, I've heard their sermons and been 
It's been fruitful in my own life and their perspective and how the Holy Spirit's used them. It's really been helpful. And they come and say, no, don't want that anymore. Getting divorced from my wife. Just going to kind of go live life now. That one notable preacher uh, termed, I think he picked up on a term, ex-evangelical rather than evangelical. They catch our attention, and it saddens us. And what we hope is that these people are just being foolish. And we're, we're hoping that it doesn't mean that they were never saved to begin with. See, look, when we trust Christ for salvation and we put our faith in him and God, just like he did with Abraham, he counts it to us as righteousness. We are justified. Look, if we can't earn our way into God's justification, I believe that we cannot sin our way out of his justification. Even if we think we have all the mental knowledge and all the knowledge that we need to say and conclude that God's not there or we just don't like him. Usually that's the case, y'all. When people are saying, I just don't think God's there. How could God allow this? How could he allow that? Well, if we're talking about what God allows, if we're talking about his characteristics of when he shows up and when he doesn't, that just means you think he's there, you just don't like him. It's a different conversation. And do you know what? We have a God that we, we have a hard time comprehending on purpose. Because you know what it does? It helps us realize that he's not a figment of our imagination. Because if he's a figment of our imagination, he does everything we agree with. That's why we win all the arguments in our heads. Because it's our imagination. So if we have a God that agrees with us in everything, we'll never know. Is it real or not? But when we have a God that we, we read the word, and there's some hard truths that we think, God, why did you do it like that? That helps us understand that he really is there. And he wants to know us and he wants to be in relationship with us. Now, we hope that people who are denying the faith or denying that God is there, who have once expressed a saving knowledge and, have, and borne fruit in their lives, we hope that they're just wandering and we trust and pray that God will bring them back. It's, it could, sadly, it could result in enough fruitfulness or, or lack of fruitfulness to reveal that they were never regenerated in the first place. They were never justified in the first place. So it saddens us. And this departure from the faith, uh, Paul is revealing, comes from a misplaced devotion. We all are prone to deception and our hearts wander back and forth like, like a, a radar signal just going around and around and around looking for something to ping us that we can pay attention to, that we can feel good about or in our lives. It makes us feel a little better. Maybe, maybe it makes us forget the misery that we're in. But we can easily become deceived by what those blips are because we have an enemy of our souls, teachings of demons, we have an enemy of our souls that wants to put those blips there that say more about our wants and desires and how we think God needs to get on our page to give us our wants and our desires rather than us say, I want to lose myself in finding you. I want, to, I want to deny my own will. God, I want to know your will and take up that will so I can serve you. You can easily highlight and elevate and exalt our wants and desires which will lead us to devote to them 
And then we take, we, we hijack p- bits and pieces of God's word to try to fit what we think God wants and what we want in our own life agenda. And so we come up with phrases like, God just wants me to be happy, right? He does. But usually our definition of happiness is, God, I'd really like the ease of just having a lot of money. Or, Mom, I would just like the ease of knowing my kids are going to be in heaven with me. That's what we ask. So we want that agenda. So we will pick and choose and try to fit that. But our focus, it's on ourselves. It's on making our lives better. God wants us to be happy, but not by our definition. Because our definition falls very short of his definition of what happiness really is. And he's got a joy, a pure joy that when we find in him, it settles and calms us. And we hear his voice saying, I love you. And we say, oh, now I'm satisfied. Now I'm joyful. Now I'm happy no matter what waves are crashing around us. Our hearts drift from God when our mental and our emotional occupation is settling and, and focusing on our fleshly cravings. The, like 1 John 2.16 says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And when our hearts drift long enough, we no longer feel the Spirit's voice in our consciences. And they become seared. That's what Paul's describing. Insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That the, the original word there, seared, is where we get the word calloused from. Or, or I'm sorry, cauterized. And that produces a callousness in our relationship with God. And when we, when we piecemeal Scripture to suit our desire, we end up believing some bad theology. We believe the wrong thing, and we think we're believing the right thing. This is seen in, in, in our modern church culture uh, with the prosperity gospel, with this over-realized eschatology. God wants all these things for me in heaven. Well, why can't I have them right now? And what are the little tricks and, and uh, formulas in order to get what God has for us in heaven right now? If he's got a mansion for me in heaven, well, I should be able to experience that right now. Not so fast. The mansion's in heaven. And what we do in this life... You know, Pastor John Piper up in Minneapolis years ago said, God's not impressed, sorry, the world is not impressed with how much God's people have. The world is impressed by how much God's people give away because he gave his only son. So we have to, that doesn't mean God doesn't bless. He does bless. But it also means that he knows our hearts. And so he he might look at us and say, you're never going to be rich because you'll deny me. Okay, that's my good. All right. I don't want to serve you. It's also seen in many formal religious structures, and many of us have grown up in that, where the emphasis is a formalization over a heart sincerity and a heart passion. We also, and this is more apropos to us, it's a dualism that we we live amidst in our culture. There is a, a cultural dualism that separates facts and feelings. Ben Shapiro's favorite term is facts don't have feelings. But as Christians, we have to say, but people have feelings, Ben. We're looking at people. We're not just looking at facts. Now, our culture says the fact is I'm born a male, but my feeling is I want to be a female. So what our culture says is, you know what? You can separate those two. So you just put the facts. Just go by your feelings. You want to be a woman? 
go ahead and we're going to stand back and applaud and we're also going to make sure everybody else in culture applauds you as well and we're going to put pressure on every business that comes out because we want them to applaud you as well. And you know what's happening? Every business is like, all right, we'll applaud because we don't want to lose your sales. There's no conscience anymore. But we're not surprised by that. We know what's happening because there's an enemy. There's the God of this world, the Bible calls him. Francis Schaeffer, I talked about him last week. Uh, he saw this coming years ago. He saw this two-story approach. And, and a lot of times within the church, it's secular and sacred. We have our life with God and we have our life in the culture. And, and there the twain will meet. The two will meet. We've got to blend those. We've got to blend them to where our lives, the holiness that we have in our relationship with God, it touches every aspect of our lives in order to be a light in the darkness that we're surrounded by. But Francis Schaeffer started calling truth, true truth, and opposed to, as opposed to the my truth. But he, he says these two stories that exist, he saw this coming years ago, but we exist in a dualism in our culture. That's why people think, well, I can have sex all that I want and it doesn't touch who I am because I'm separated like that. Everything that I do with my body, that's my business, leave me alone, it doesn't touch you. And if I'm, if, if I'm not feeling that it's bad, who are you to tell me it's bad? We have a dualism all over. They had a dualism that Paul was uh, encouraging Timothy to correct. It was the Gnosticism that existed then that's, that said, you know, everything you do with your body, really, um, it, it's bad. Everything. That's why they're telling them, don't get married, don't have sex, don't touch that food. Thinking that that was going to bring them some type of heightened spirituality. But bad feelings, listen, this is for us, bad feelings, or bad theology, rather, is also a veiled attempt to cover up our sinful actions and desires. Because we can have some bad things. What we do is sin, and then we try to figure out how God's okay with our sin. And so then we hijack scriptures back and forth and try to figure out how, we, how God really is just okay. And we just, even if it's just verses on forgiveness, we'll just go after that. We use scripture to justify our wants, but we become hardened and leads to hypocritical living. I've just I've been saddened by another famous apologist, Ravi Zacharias, who after his death was found out to have just been a sinful man, more than it just had a had a dual life, a dual life. His, his I've learned a lot from Ravi Zacharias, and I don't think that necessarily means we throw everything out. Like oh no no no. You're anathema now. Can't you? No, I think the Holy Spirit used some things, and we, we just have to, we have to use some caveats with that and say, look, everybody, everybody's sinful. It's a, it's a miracle that God uses imperfect people to do a perfect work. But we, can, we, still can, we still can help the gospel along with that. It, look, the Bible, is, the Bible is a unique book because if it's, it's so real with people's sinfulness. It doesn't glorify any man. Except Jesus, who was sinless. He talks about, oh yeah, here's a king. Yeah, he stayed back when he was, he was supposed to go to war. And he had this lust issue. And he saw this woman bathing. And uh, yep, he had committed adultery. And then oh, he killed her husband. That's the reality of God's word. That's what we have. We also have women who drive tent pegs into a dude's head into the ground. That's a cool story. <laughs> Judges, Cicero, look it up. 
awesome. She's like, come in for some milk. Sure, mm-hmm. Sleep right here. <laughs> right through his temple. Awesome. When our lives don't match our words, listen, when our lives don't match our words, we become liars. And we want to protect that. We don't want, we want to be sensitive to the spirit and not calloused in our minds and our emotions. But like I've been saying, there is a force beyond, uh, behind all of this, and it's the devil himself. What is this teaching of demons? Paul has used the created order and experience in his letter so far, so it follows that he's probably thinking of the same thing. It's good for us to think of that created order as well. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. And notice the tactic of Satan in deceiving Eve. One, he casts doubt on God's goodness. Did God really say that? Well, he said that because he knows when you eat of it, you'll be like him. He's withholding from you. Cast out on his goodness, which makes us cast out on his love. Does he really love me? He's not giving all of himself to me. So the first tactic, the devil says, is God good? Causes that doubt. Then he denies God's justice. You will not surely die. You won't die. He just absolutely denies, lies about God's justice. He won't come against you because of your sin. You know what? These are the same exact temptations and deceptions that we deal with every single day. How often do we think, God, are you there? It's questioning God's goodness. Now, sometimes it's appropriate to ask that question. The psalmist asked that question. How long is this going to go on? Was, is there any other light, <laughs> any light in my life in this dark tunnel that I'm in? Can you like punch a skylight or something, God? But when we have this arrogant approach that says, God, I sh- you should not be doing this to me. This should not be happening in my life. That's usually based on bad theology. We have to make sure that we're thinking the right things and keeping the essential things essential and not elevating these these second and third and fourth tier elements up to primary saying, God, you've got to do it this way. When we have wrong concepts of God's justice and his goodness, we will use it to run from him or we will turn it into a tool to ease our seared consciences. And this comes up in the form of legalism. Legalism is salvation based on performance. How do, Let's follow all the rules, check them off. God's looking at that. He says, oh, nine out of ten of the Ten Commandments? Well, uh, okay. And that's where we get the whole, I really hope when I go to heaven I'm not standing behind Mother Teresa because I would really not be compared well. Legalism is that part of that, that comparison game. And we compare ourselves to Jesus who, so how much can I be like Jesus and maybe God will accept me? And God wants his people to be like Jesus, but not in order to get justified, but as a fruit of our justification, a fruit of our faith. Not, we're not trying to get enough faith in order to believe him. We, we trust him. And then he puts the spirit inside of us, gives us new life, and we walk it out. And every day in our sanctification, we become more and more like Jesus. And then in verses 3 and 5, Paul brings up this rejecting and receiving concept. But as we think about legalism, hear what they're doing in verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created. There is an allure of legalism. This is why. Because it's measurable. 
how you measure faith. Well, Jesus said, if you have enough faith, you can move a mountain. He said, if you have faith as a mustard seed. You ever seen how small that is? I'm sunk. I ain't got that. I don't even have a mustard seed of faith because I can't, I've been, I can't tell any mountain to move. I don't, I don't. So we try to get in this weird, how do you measure faith? So this is what we do. Like, well, I can measure my performance. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come more performance-based in my salvation. And here's what we do. We look at other people's performance. Now, Jesus said, you know a tree by its fruit. But what we do is elevate it and we attach other ungodly rules to people's lives because we want something that communicates to us for ourselves that we're okay and that somebody else is okay. And here's moms. Moms, be careful not to get into a performance-based relationship with your children. Your older children, maybe they've wandered from the faith, and you, when you talk to them, what you ask them is, well, have you gone to church? That's not a helpful question in that moment. A better question is, how are you doing? And being able to identify with them and say, or, or if you have young kids, got to get them to church. There's a proverb somewhere that says, train them up the way you should go, and they're not going to wander from it. All right, get them to church. That's looking for a formalism to establish something in the heart that will never establish something in the heart. That's what the Pharisees were guilty of. They had all these rules, and they added two rule after rule after rule, thinking if we do enough rules, something's going to change on the inside. It never happens. We don't rule ourselves into obedience. We see Jesus, and then we want to love him because we see his love and feel his love, and we're satisfied and joyful, and we walk it out. We don't want to admonish children with a performance base. Now, there is an appropriate measure. When, you're, when your kids do something well, praise them. That is excellent. But you can easily shift that to not a, that's great, God's going to see that one day, and he's really going to enjoy that. No, God gave that to you because you're made in his image. That's a, that's a little piece of God that you're seeing. So every time you obey, that's a little piece of Jesus that you get to see. Keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. As you train them into that day when God says, trust me, and they say, yes, I trust you. When we put performance onto our kids, we are more looking for an assurance for ourselves rather than for them. We look for them to do all the rules that we think salvation looks like, and we do this with other people in our lives. Somebody prays to receive Christ, and what are we doing? We're looking for some kind of changed life. We have our own categories of how that's supposed to look. My father-in-law had the joy of praying with my father-in-law to receive Christ. There, There were a lot of rough edges to that man. He's with Jesus today. He wasn't a great dad. There were a lot of rough edges to him, the way he communicated with his kids. But after that moment, he was in the hospital, crossed the lake, prayed with him, came home, and just Kathy and I were rejoicing. We went over to their house. Not too long after that, after he was released, my mother-in-law loved having the family for dinner. We went over there. There was just simply a difference in his demeanor. He looked, and my kids noticed it. 
Because as we were going home, this is what my kid said. Papa seemed different. He was. Did he stop cursing? No. Did he start going to church every Sunday? No. But you know what? We had different conversations after that. And then we were blessed to have him with us the last year of his life living with us. And at the dinner table, I think he learned more about God than it, it, in his life cumulatively. And we were very grateful for that. And he was always agreeing. He'd come up with these questions. He'd ask. And I'd say, does that make sense? He would say, no. We had a wonderful time. But that, that transformation didn't look like a category to check off. What we felt was a difference about who he was. We do the same with our kids. We, we want them, look, salvation in your children looks like, do they, do they understand justification by faith alone? And two, are they remorseful over their sin? That's what you're looking for. Now, there's a lot of ways that you're supposed to influence those. It's just easy to look for something in them, these two fruits in their lives, but you've got a lot of work to be doing to be able to establish those two fruits. Or, or so into those. Do they know Jesus? Are they sorry for their sin? And is that increasing? Are they sorry for their sin at the point of saying, I really want to stop doing this? And they stop. Show spirit life. Spirit life inside of them that, that it's making that happen. So uh, legalism doesn't restore anyone to Christ. We need to be winsome in our conversations. The false teachers in Ephesus were convincing the church that to be holy, one must not have sex, and you need to be a vegetarian. They redefined holiness in measurable ways, thinking it was more pleasing to the Lord, thereby lying about God's goodness. Oh, God gave these? He said they're good? They're really not. Can I tell you a pet peeve? I love when Christians try to convince me, because we all do that. We all have these discoverable ways that, wow, I did this, and it was great, and now everybody needs to do it. So everybody's got a different category. They just came to mind. You know it. Everybody, uh-huh, I, th- I thought of something. Well, when vegetarians or vegans who are Christians come up, and they're like, but it's the way that God, he made us this way. Adam and Eve were to eat the fruit. Now, look, I love you all. If, you, if I'm saying what you're saying, I love you dearly, but if you say this to me, my favorite verse is, Peter, slay and eat. That's in the Bible, too. Yeah, that's how Adam and Eve were, and they lived 900 years. Now, me me eating fruit is not going to make me live 900 years. Me eating trash is going to make it feel bad. God's numbered our days. Now, I want to be, my wife and I, we we talk about this. We want to be vibrant, and we, in our, (laughs) bodies are falling apart. Just, it's, it's amazing. I just made 45 a month ago. And I think at that turn, my body just went, yeah, we're done. <laughs> no. Muscles, I don't want to work. Just, uh, no, we're done. You know, you know, you have to think about stuff. It's like, do I really want to do that? I have aches and pains. I have no idea what I did. Like, my arm hurts right here. I don't know what I did. Did I type too fast? I mean, what am I doing? I'd sit most every day. 
no idea where I was going with that. Let me get back to my notes. <laughs> oh, getting, getting faith to measurable ways. We've got to be careful. The, the, something might be good for us. We don't put that on other people as the expectation to where if they don't do it, we look, you, you really don't love Jesus that much because you give your kids milk. Don't you know what that's doing to their hormones? Look, you know people, you laugh because people have said that kind of stuff. We're missing the point. Look, the, the primary is the primary. Keep the main thing the main thing. Do you love Jesus? Third, fourth, fifth is like, all right, what are you putting in your body because maybe that's making you sick all the time so you can't love Jesus like he wants you to experience his love. Maybe that's a good conversation to have. So if you're gluten-free, yeah, it's because I want to love Jesus more and not feel miserable all the time. Great! I'm with you on that. When you come to my house, we're going to figure out how to not give you gluten so you can love Jesus more. Absolutely. God's grace, y'all, is counterintuitive. <laughs> I don't know what y'all are thinking to keep on laughing. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> Look, we, we look for the measure of the rules, but God's grace simply says, trust me. And it's amazing that when we trust him, he says, good job, I love you, you're righteous. You're righteous in my sight. You're righteous before me, and you can never, the devil can never tell you to leave my sight. And then Paul still keeps with the created order and receiving what's good from God. We need to see, receive the good that God has given us. Paul appeals to God's created order to, to, to give understanding on how the church should be upholding the truth. What God creates is good, and it's wrong to say otherwise. The distinction is knowing what God calls good. Because we live in a culture and our cravings, we think what's bad is good. So we say, oh, this feels good. It's good. No, that could be destroying our souls. What has God called good? I want to honor that, and I want to walk in that. God says marriage is good. So we devote ourselves to doing things God's way. We do God's things God's ways. This doesn't mean uh, too much. If you have questions about, and I don't, I don't want to, look, adultery is wrong, but we, because adultery is, adultery is wrong, we don't say nobody should get married just so nobody commits adultery. No, God says marriage is good. God gives men and women, a, a, uh, and they're, they're looking for this singleness as a marker of spirituality. Like, oh, you're super spiritual. Wow, you're, you, you are, you're not married? You're really spiritual. As if that was a, a something to attain to. God says it's good. God calls some people to be single. That's a gift. It's a rare gift. For the most, everybody who is a believer, and everybody else, unbelievers, get married. Be fruitful and multiply. I have to say this before I forget. This has nothing to do with anything. Uh, this is Foster Care Awareness Month. May is, and I'm I'm just I'm rejoicing to see the Saint Sears with five beautiful children that they just opened up their home. They I have so many more kids, but that they have come through their house. Uh, David and Kristen Noble. Are they serving in the back too? They, they're adopting their little boy next week. Wow. It's so cool. So but being fruitful and multiply looks like foster care and adoption as well. That's why I thought of that. 
All right, there are things that are wise for each believer to apply to their lives. To live out a holy life, we look for that. What works for me, like I have to do it this way in order for me to be sustained in Christ. That's great. And we look, for, we look to encourage one another in that as well. We don't want to hold out our new discoveries and ways of connecting to God as uh, rules that other people, if they don't do, they're actually sinning against God. No, they're just they're not going with our opinion. We need to be careful. We need to love one another past that. And we need to look to make the ordinary holy. In verse 5, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. He really is talking about saying grace before a meal. But it's not just through a meal. It's through everything we do. We thank the Lord with everything that we do. So when we sit down at work, we thank the Lord for that. When we are interacting at the table, we thank the Lord for that. And we, we have we have established routines. It, saying, uh, uh, asking, thanking God for the food on the table had already been a, a routine for the believers in the, in the first century church. So he's just saying, keep on doing that. Because what you're doing is not, there's not some magical power like grace. It's all holy now. No, he's saying, when we, it's, think about it this way. God created it all and proclaimed it good. When we thank him for that food, and his provision and his care for us, we're saying, God, we recognize you're good, and we're saying good because God put it there, and he's the one that sustains and keeps us. We're pronouncing his blessing of good over us when we thank him for everything. So thank him for everything. And families, please use your time at your tables during meals. We have a very long table in our house. 13 feet long. Many of you have seen it, been around it. We love having it full. And we had uh, Emily and Beth's dance team come over uh, a couple months ago just for a little connection night, a little waffle thing. And they looked at the table and they thought it was the strangest thing they'd ever seen. Like, do y'all sit at this? I mean, he said, yeah, most every night. And then for one by one, I kept saying, we don't even eat together as a family. Mom just makes it on the stove. We just get it when we want. Everybody's sitting in front of a screen. Look, and I want to make this easy. If this has been your routine, please just break through the barrier of the awkwardness to say, we're going to eat together. It's going to be around the table. And we're going to pray beforehand. And this is your prayer. Lord, thank you for this food. Then you eat. But then you ask questions of the day and you talk and you find out what's going on. You invite a four-year-old over who, who gets all kinds of questions that he wants to ask and it's awesome. Use your time. And then when, when you really want to bring a spiritual point and your teenage kids keep on laughing, keep going, keep going. Try not to be like, what? <laughs> Bring him back. Come on, let's pay attention. <laughs> it doesn't have to be 30 minutes. It can be three. Start realistically, but use your time at the tables. Now, verse 6. Sorry, I'm, I'm swerving from my notes this morning. Departing from my notes. We want to serve up the truth. And here is what the Apostle Paul is saying. 
Put these things before the brothers. There's a seasoned repetition that needs to be in our homes, and moms particularly. Your, I love you, but your repetition can become nagging real fast. Because when we look at measurable components, we're nagging. When we're looking at God continually, and our kids can see a, a grace and a power and a force inside of us, and they want that too. And then we're able to season our repetition. Now, the gift for you today is a teacup and some tea. Now, it is our, we hope that you will use this. So it's a repetition. You keep on using the same thing, right? Keep using it. And as you use that or you see it, you can be praying for your children as a reminder. There's repetition. But also, you want to be the seasoning. You want to be the tea in that cup for your kids. And it's not going to, it's not a, a, a bitterness thing of what have you, you've made my life so miserable and I can't believe. No, we just pray. We keep on praying and there's a seasoned repetition. So drink from that cup, pray for your children and seek to be a means of grace for them to supply and, and be the tea in their lives, the seasoning, so to speak. Because we prove that at that point we are trained in the words of faith. We get a hold of God like Jacob and, and our lives are marked by him. Jacob wrestled with God and he won. Because God led him. But God wants to be won over by us. and We get on to him, uh, around him and for him. We, we are trained in words of faith and we follow good doctrine. We don't go after the performance-based stuff. We live by faith and we live by faith as lights. And when that light shines, Jesus is exalted and his promise is he draws men to him. So you love Jesus, moms. You love Jesus with everything you are and you pray for God to bring your children to him. Not to you for your own comfort and assurance. To Jesus. That's the goal. So keep, you know, Jesus said, if you don't have, ask. Want something, knock at the door. It will be open to you. Seek and you'll find. God is a God who wants, he wants to answer our prayers. So can I pray for your children, for you? Lord, I first ask for the power of your spirit to be upon the moms here. God, the, the ladies who are wanting to be a mom and haven't been able to experience that yet, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower them and that they would, we would have testimonies of pregnancies and you answering prayer in that way. Lord, I ask for those who are raising children, I pray... Well, for moms to be anointed, that's what I ask God. And moms to be anointed and dipped in your spirit in such a unique way that everything is different. Their words are different. Their love feels different. And their children respond to them differently because something of you is there. Even when, when life is miserable and hard, sleepless nights, hover and anoint them. Father, we ask for those who are raising young children. We ask that you would save every single one of them and secure their affections on you. Secure their affections so they never, ever wander from the faith. Please, please be miraculous. 
Father, we ask for children who are believers and walking in the faith. God, we ask for such a strength in their walks. We pray for mom's words to be seasoned with salt so they they taste the Savior. And there's a sweetness about interacting with mom that draws them to want to know their Savior more. God, I pray for believing children who are walking with you that you would keep them in the faith. Please, God, keep them from temptation and deception and false doctrine. Please. God, I pray for unbelieving children. God, I know this is what keeps moms up. when they get a phone call and it's another bad decision, another unwise pursuit and their heart aches. They just long for their children to know you. Father, would you please save every one of our children? Save those unbelieving children, God. Save them and set them on a course of glory. Because it's as an expression of your love that they would know truth and they would know life. Jesus, they would know you as the way. And they would experience your love and never wander from it. Please save them, God. Please. Lord, we ask for children who have believed and now they're they're doubting. Maybe they're antagonistic to the gospel they once had. Maybe they're antagonistic to how they were raised. Lord, I pray that you would be a a balm, a soothing truth for those children so they can return. And God, I know all these moms and dads, they're, they're looking like that father of the prodigal son, looking looking at the hill, looking at that entry point to see, God, I pray that you would meet these moms' expectation of seeing their children return to you and to know the prodigal God that we have who just gives lavishly of himself even when life doesn't make sense or there's suffering that that we just can't figure out why God allowed. Lord, would you please love these moms by saving their kids. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.